You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Somebody just came up to me in the service and said, I feel like if I don't say this now, I'm going to miss something. And it didn't sound like the kind of fear that legalism imparts into you. If I don't give the prophetic word, something bad is going to happen. It sounded like birth pangs. If I don't get this out now, it's coming out whether you like it or not. It sounded like that kind of word, and the word was very simple. And I want this word to be the banner over this sermon. The word is this. God wants somebody in this room to know that he's waiting for you, and he will never stop waiting for you. If that wasn't for you, sounds like a nice sentiment. If it was, it may be life-changing. It may be life-changing. Listen to what Isaiah says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord. The majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, not jackalin, jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. So this is good news for somebody. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. Nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The gospel. Now when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered John, uh, the disciples, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them, and this is vital. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that we will receive you, that we would be willing to be honest about our lack of faith in you, and that we would be healed from our tendency to be offended by you. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm waiting, and I won't stop waiting, is the theme of this message. And let me tell you, if that was for somebody in the room because you know somebody that that's who it's for, which might be most of us in the room, don't hesitate to tell them today. 
If you know somebody who needs to know that God is waiting for them and he won't stop waiting, that is not an offensive word to give somebody. It doesn't matter if they agree with you or not. That's an okay thing to go call somebody up, text them, even while I'm preaching right now, and said, my pastor said to tell you that God is waiting for you, and no matter what you're doing, he won't stop waiting. I can't tell you at the core and fiber of my being as a pastor how much I believe the scandal that God is going to wait out everyone who's not waiting for him. Something about this phrase has changed my life. There is no way that my sin can outrun and outlast the love of God. If that makes you nervous about my theology, what did Jesus say again? Let me just... Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay. We live in Advent as evidence that the God who seems absent is precisely the God who is present. We live as evidence that the God who seems absent is present. So much of the evangelical Pentecostal Christian faith has been proving to people that God is present when we are supposed to be the proof that God is present in the earth. Arguments don't win people over. Love breaking into their life when they know it's not deserved is what wins people over. The threat of hell does not win people over. Love, undeserving love being poured into their lap is what wins people over. Threat doesn't get people to behave. Love gets people to behave. I'm I'm saying all kinds of things. Not sorry. Listen. God is omnipresent. Yes? Which means he's everywhere at the same time. Which means he's every when at the same time. Which means he's in every possibility. God exists in things that might happen. Let the philosophy of God, when it's just kind of like doled out in little bits and drabs, let it take you to the breaking point. God exists in things that might happen because God is the reason why possibility exists in the first place. And so wherever there's possibility, there's God. So God is present when he feels relationally close. How many have had those seasons? And please raise your hands. Let's get, how many have had those seasons? Somebody's hands already up. You don't even know what I'm going to say. I could, I could really fool you right now. How many have had those seasons where you know you're walking with God? You can feel him. You know it. He's there. It's hot. It's ready. It's always. And then there's that middle ground where you know he's there, but he just, he feels present, but he feels kind of far away. It's like all of a sudden you're having this long distance relationship with him. And how many have felt like he's just straight absent? Here's the funny thing about God. He exists when he's close. He exists where there's distance and God is in absence. He is in a place that we would call nowhere. Thomas Aquinas said, if God is truly omnipresent, that means he's here and he's also nowhere. Because if wherever nowhere is, and listen to me, the feeling of nowhere, that feeling where you feel disoriented, that feeling where you feel like no one understands you. And let me say, there is no deeper kind of loneliness than when you have people in your life that don't get you. There's the loneliness of not having anybody, and that is real. And then there's another kind of loneliness when you have people, but none of them understand you. What you're going through feels foreign, even to the people who are trying to love you. And you get all kinds of advice, and none of it helps. 
and you almost wish you didn't have friends at that point. Wherever your nowhere is, God is there. This has to be the case. Because in every resurrection narrative, and you've heard me say this, and I'm going to say it for however long you all want to keep coming here for. All the resurrection narratives are not about Jesus coming out of the tomb. They're all about us walking into the tomb. No resurrection story shows Jesus coming out of the tomb, but every one of them shows us walking into a place that God was supposed to be absent in, and he's now present in the very place that is the antithesis to his character, which is death. He exists here, he exists there, and he exists nowhere, so no matter where you are, the presence of God is there to be found. That's not enough for us to agree. That's what we have to tell them. The world that doesn't know where it is needs to know that it doesn't need to know where it is to know that God knows where it is and God is present there. For too long, the church has been saying God is present here. He's not present there. And when you're willing to get your act together, you can come here and meet him. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is a man who's getting criticized by religion for sitting with tax collectors and drunkards. He's called a glutton. He's called a wine-bibber. And when religion comes to tell him he shouldn't be with them, he disses them by slighting them and saying, I didn't call to come, you righteous people, to repentance. I came to call sick people to repentance. So now the Pharisees have a problem. Either we say we're righteous and we know that we're not, or we pull up a seat next to him and sit with these tax collectors and sinners. I am willing to run every risk of what it means to be an open place because I'm not interested in how your lifestyle is first. I'm interested that you meet the love of God and let God take care of your lifestyle. The Bible is about until John, until Isaiah prophesies, the whole narrative of the Bible is about being called to a land getting called away from that land, starting with Adam and Eve, getting kicked out of Eden, then developing, then being told that I'm going to bring you back to the land, then we end up in Egypt, and I'm going to bring you back to the land, then we end up in Babylon, and I'm going to bring you back to the land, then we end up in Assyria, I'm going to bring you back to the land. David runs from Saul, but I'm going to make you king. Jacob runs from his brother, but I'm going to bring you back. Ruth, Esther, go on and on and on. The whole narrative is about people who are supposed to be in one place and they're in a bad place and the hope is that God brings them to, back to that place. But then Isaiah comes and turns the whole thing upside down and says, here's the thing, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to hope that God brings us from this bad place to a better place. We're going to hope that streams break forth in the bad place. Think of the switch that this, the whiplash again. You've been asking me to get you out of the wilderness. How about I transform the wilderness? You've been asking me to get you out of Babylon. How about I transform Babylon? You've been asking me to get you out of that job. How about I transform that job? You've been asking me to get you out of that relationship. How about I transform that relationship? Too soon? Too close? We've been escapists, which is why we developed one of the worst theologies in the world, which is the theology of the rapture. And it doesn't even consist with what Jesus said. When you pray, pray thy kingdom here. Come here. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Not take me out of here quickly, Lord Jesus. 
What if the whole point of living as lights in the darkness is that God doesn't want to take us out of the darkness. He wants the darkness to become light because of what he's doing in our lives. We've been running from the thing we're called to, which is why 90% of Christians don't know what their destiny is anyway, because we don't want to go into the darkness, because we think with the we got white gloves, and the world is like a dirty engine, and if we try to fix the engine, the engine will still be dirty, and our gloves will now be dirty. No! When Jesus touched the leper, whose gloves got dirty and whose gloves got clean? Did Jesus have leprosy? Did the leper have leprosy? We got to touch stuff that the church has been telling us not to touch. white gloves. C.S. Lewis said, if there's a longing in your life that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's not because God's disappointing you. It's because you were made for an entirely different world. Out there, everyone is pining for meaning. And we're fighting each other over it. We're criticizing each other over it. We have to look at John. John, there is no, not you, John, John the Baptist. My brother-in-law is back from the University of Buffalo, got his bachelor's degree and a full-time job at IBM. Very proud of him. He's got a long list of accolades. He was, he spoke uh, at... What's that place? What's it called? Where, where? The Apollo. He spoke at the Apollo after he graduated from uh, sound school, recording school, and then he went and got his bachelor's degree. Then he went and got a full-time job at IBM. He's walked through some stuff. God is present in his life. It's important that we tell our stories as much as we can. In his worst moment... John the Baptist becomes the most important person in the Bible besides Jesus. Everything John the Baptist does, somebody say everything. Everything he does is preparing the way for Jesus. This is the last thing he does besides when he gets his head chopped off. This is the last thing he does. The last thing the forerunner for the gospel does is he says, are you really the one or did we miss it? That is the final piece of what it means to prepare the way for Christ. Any form of Christianity that makes you feel like your faith is predicated on your certainty is demonic. The final chess piece of the person whose job it was is to make known the way that leads to Jesus. His final move is to say, honesty about our doubts is the final thing that leads to Jesus. None of us want to hear that. But the greatest prophet, the prophet who stood in a river with with Jesus and saw the transition from prophecy to fulfillment, touched it with his own hand. He is the New Testament and the Old Testament finding a home in one person. The last thing he does is doubt. But doubts faithfully. What is faithful doubt? Unfaithful doubt is walking away and saying, this can't be real, I'm done. 
the other unfaithful doubt is acting like we never doubt. Raise your hand if you've sinned this week. One, two, three, four, five, six. If you've sinned this week, in the moment of sinning, you said, are you the one or should we wait for another? Every time you gave a nasty look, instead of loving somebody, you said to Jesus, are you really the one or should we wait for somebody else? Every time you came home thinking you need a drink in order to be able to unwind, you said, are you really the one or should we look for another? Every time you were impatient with your kids and instead of waiting for the early and latter rain, you just hurled off and screamed at them. You said to Jesus, are you really the one or are we waiting for another? Every time you had time to be with somebody in need and chose not to because you didn't feel like it and turned not feeling like it into being tired, you said to Jesus, are you really the one or should we wait for another? I said that to Jesus more than I said hello to him this week. We grew up thinking that when you start to pray, you're supposed to say, dear Jesus, as if you're writing him a letter. We said it so much that one time, mom, remember one time the phone rang and my sister Katie answered the phone and said, dear Jesus, because she was so confused about how to be a human because of how we were taught to pray. She said, dear Jesus. Oh, that's embarrassing, right? We are so good at talking to him, but what are we really saying? Every time you sin, you doubt it. If you didn't doubt, you wouldn't have picked up something you shouldn't have picked up. You wouldn't have used screen time to try to be a narcotic to your life because you refuse to feel how bad you're actually feeling and pray about it. This is my playbook. I'm just saying stuff right out of my playbook. If if you want to run the same plays, I'm sure your stuff is probably worse than mine. It's no big deal. It's fine. Until the day you wake up and don't have to repent over anything, you're saying, are you the one or should we look for another? Tried looking for you in that bottle. Tried looking for you on that phone. I tried looking for you in that gossip. I tried looking for you in that nasty remark. I tried looking for you in the way that I broke a relationship off. Are you really the one or am I supposed to keep looking through all of these things that I'm looking through to try to find you? What's faithful doubt? Faithful doubt is when you ask the question, And you mean it. Are you the one or should we wait for another? I'll receive your answer as a yes. Whatever you say next. That's faithful doubt. That's the way, that's the Red Sea parting. When you don't say, I have no doubts. Or when you don't say, I have doubts, so I'm giving up on it. But when you say, God, I have doubts, talk to me. That's faithful doubt. And that's the way prepared in the wilderness. Jesus shows up on that road. When, it, when the text first opens, it says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, Are you the one or should we wait for another? The things he heard at that, at that point are not the things he was told later. So what he was told later is the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the poor have good news preached to them. Right? When, John, when it first says that John heard the things that Jesus was doing, it wasn't that stuff that John had heard about. He needed to be told that stuff. Okay, what did he hear? Let's talk about John. John was a prophet. He is an exhorter. He lived a very strict life. We know that John didn't eat normal food. We know that John didn't dress the way everybody else dressed. We know that John is in prison because he called Herod out on his sexual immorality and got put in prison for it. 
We know that John didn't drink wine or strong drink. John lived the strictest life possible because he was a prophet and he was an exhorter. And then what did he hear about Jesus? He heard that Jesus was doing the opposite of those things. John called Herod out. You are sleeping with somebody you shouldn't be sleeping with. You're a snake. Ended up in jail. Jesus has prostitutes pouring oil on his feet and he doesn't say anything to them. He's like, ooh, I'll continue my conversation. What? Jesus doesn't fast? Jesus eats so much they call him a glutton. Praise the Lord. Jesus avoided alcohol. No, he didn't. It was watered down back then. No, it wasn't. He drank so much they called him a wine bibber. And what does Jesus say? John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. I come eating and drinking. You say I'm a glutton and a wine bibber. The religious spirit is never satisfied with anything. It just wants to complain. But John is stuck because John is saying, I'm in prison for following all the rules, and the one I was heralding is out doing all that? Are you really the one? Or should I be waiting for somebody else? That's why Jesus, the last thing he says to John's disciples is, go tell him, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Because Jesus knew where the question was coming from. You're upset that you lived the holiest life possible, and you're in prison. And I'm out here going to every party, turning 180 gallons of water into wine, and I'm not in prison. John... Come talk to me on Good Friday. He says, John, the blind see, the deaf hear. He quotes Isaiah because that's who John has been quoting his whole life. Look, streams will come into the wilderness. The gospel went into prison. Somebody on Twitter said, Jesus is a hypocrite. He tells us to go uh, visit the prisoners, and he never went to visit John. First of all, it says that he descended to the dead. He didn't go visit John in prison. He went and visited everybody in the prison that created prisons, so there's that. But when he sent the disciples to the prison, that's how Jesus visited John in prison. He sent you with a word in your mouth to go into a prison and not rebuke the prison, but tell the people in it, he's not who you think he is. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and the poor have good news preached to them. And don't be offended because these bars are coming down one day. He doesn't remove the prison. He transforms the prison. He doesn't pull John out. He changes the scape of the prison. John accepts the answer. John goes faithfully to death after this because the prison changed. We've talked about this before too, but the prison changes so much that when Paul and Silas are in prison and they sing and there's the earthquake and the bars open and the shackles come off, none of them leave. None of them leave the prison. The famous verse, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Come on, did we forget? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that everyone's shackles were loose and the bars were open. 
And then we stop there and say, if you praise hard enough, God's going to get you out of prison. But that's not where the story stops. The story stops with the jailer saying, oh my gosh, all the prisoners escaped. I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to kill myself. And Paul says, don't. We're all still here. Because the prison don't feel like a prison anymore. Because God didn't take us out. He changed it from the inside out. That's what he does. We don't need to be taken out of some place. We need the heavens to come down into that place. We are how that happens. Until Jesus returns, we are the way that he's beginning to return. Uh, We are the equivalent to that first ray of light that lets you know the sun is about to rise. That's who we are. We're not meant to be the light. We're meant to be a ray of the light, letting you know that morning is almost here. That's our calling. We can't do that if we hide from the world. We have to be in the world to do that. But how should we be in the world? We need the embodiment of John the Baptist and Jesus. How are we to be in the world? We need to be in the world with messianic love, And prophetic exhortation at the same time. I'm not going to belabor this point. I just want to touch on it. Jesus is what John's prophecy looks like when it's wrapped up in love. We have to understand, John got offended. John was lacking a little bit of love. John just wanted everyone to have correct behavior. John just wanted Herod to repent. John just wanted, you know, he wanted people living right. And he's upset with Jesus because Jesus seems to be wanting people to live right second. He wants, them to, he wants to love them first. We need to be people who are both. If all we are is prophetic exhorters, we will stay away from everything. We will talk smack about everything that we think is immoral. We will gossip about everything. We will judge everything. We will begin to disdain groups of people. We'll become more political than Christian. Help me, God. will become religious elitists who stand away from everything, thinking that the best Christian life is to be separate from the world. Tell me how God becomes a person, and then tell me how we're supposed to be separate from the world when he became the world. He put on sinful flesh. But then there's this swing in Christianity now that says pure, blind acceptance is the way to go. No, it's not. That is dangerous. We're supposed to enter the world and show the world how to use the world the right way, not use it the way the world is using it. I, I have some quotes from people who are smarter than me to help me illustrate this point. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, A love that left people alone in their guilt would not have re- real people as its object. In other words... A love that says, until you get it right, my love for you will be over. Are we back? Whoa, that was scary. That love doesn't have real people as its object. It has right behavior as its object. We need to be careful that we're not the kind of people who love the right behavior of a person more than we love the person. Or hate the wrong behavior of the person more than we love the person. When I, when I do this and I don't talk, it's because I just want to make sure that I'm not talking too much. It needs to register. C.S. Lewis said, 
God loves us as we are, but loves us too much for us to remain as we are. His love says yes to me. And during the course of his love saying yes to me, his love is saying no to things in my life because his love is saying yes to me. To me. When I started dating Jacqueline, I had a very, very, very bad temper. It was a, looking back now, I realized I had, I didn't have the tools to deal with anxiety. And so anxiety was coming out as anger. And when you're a person who deals with anxiety, nothing feels more frustrating than when you can't communicate it to people. And so that's where temper comes from. For me, that's where it came from. And what happens is, here's a woman who said yes to me when it was very difficult to, and her continued love for me was her saying no to the things in me that are not great as a way of saying yes to me, and slowly those things that she was saying no to are burning off. Isaiah says that there will be a way in the wilderness. It'll be called the righteous way. And it's, he says this, and I just, I love this. He says that there will be a highway in the wilderness. It'll be called the way of holiness. What does Jesus say? I am the... So when Isaiah says there's going to be a path in the wilderness, who is the path? It's not an actual path. It's a person. And he says this. He says the unclean will not walk on that road. So I was like, this isn't good. Like, is God going to be on the road like, are you clean? No. Get out of here. Are you clean? Yes. Come on. Like, this is not what he's going to do. How do I know that's not what he's going to do? Because Jesus touched unclean people and they became clean in the Gospels. He didn't say to the woman with the issue of blood, why would you touch me? You're dirty. He didn't say to the lepers, why are you walking near me? You're dirty. He didn't say to the tax collectors and sinners, you're too sinful for me to be around. He said, I am the path. And if you walk on this path long enough, you won't be the way that you are for too much longer. So why won't the unclean walk on the road? Because they'll all be made clean. How do I know that just from the text in Isaiah? Because it says this, no lion shall be there. Is God going to remove lions? Lions show up in the book of Revelation. He's not going to remove them. But he says no lion shall be there. What did we talk about last week? The lion shall. What he's saying is the lion, as you know the lion to be, will not be on that road. Because the lion is going to be such a different kind of being that you won't recognize it as a lion anymore. You'll recognize it as a lamb. We're here to walk with people long enough until they want to turn around and walk in the right direction. I'm waiting for you. And no matter how much you ignore me, I will wait as long as it takes. That's the word that was given Uh, on the road to Emmaus. It said that they were walking away from Jerusalem because they were disappointed about the things that happened. And at one point it said that they went to turn in for the night and Jesus stayed out here. This is the road in the wrong direction. And they turn in for the night. And it says that Jesus stood outside being willing to walk longer. You guys are turning in. I'm willing to walk with you in the wrong direction as long as it takes. He was never trying to get them to turn around. He was willing to walk with them in the direction they were walking in long enough for them to want to turn around. Do we have that kind of patience with people? Let's hear about what James says about patience. I hope this is resonating with somebody. If anything, it's resonating with me. So I'll just amen my own stuff, I guess. James, be patient. That sucks. Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... 
That's a long time to be patient for. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. It's been 2,000 years. Okay. Then he says this. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Listen, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. What is he saying? He's saying that there are moments where somebody acts a certain kind of way and you say that is you're not ripe yet. And what we do is when we snap at people, when we make judgments about people, when we gossip about people, when we make assessments about people, immediately what we're doing is we're plucking them off the tree and saying you should have been right by now and you're not, so I'm getting rid of that fruit. And he's saying wait until that fruit receives the early and the latter rain. In other words, my patience over you is the patience of a farmer that says it might be time to pluck that fruit, but something tells me it needs one more rainstorm. It needs a little bit more water. It needs another day in the sun. When you're patient over somebody's life, you're pulling them into salvation. When you're not patient over somebody's life, you're telling them that they've reached the best they will ever be. Peter says at the end of 2 Peter, at the very end of 2 Peter, he says, the patience of the Lord is salvation. He says, God is moving slow, but not as we count slowness. His slowness is meant to give you time to repent. Patience is pulling the future of God into the present for the person. It's not judging them when when it might be time to. It's waiting for God to do it. Well, what does that mean? It means we get something that's called the double hurt. The double hurt. When somebody does something to you, it hurts once. When you shut your mouth and forgive them, That hurts the ego, too, a little bit. Am I the only one? Am I the only one with an ego? I have an ego, trust me, but am I the only one? I need to know that I'm not the only one because my ego needs to know it's not alone. (laughs) That was like a real naked moment right there. Like, please, somebody tell me so I don't think I'm the worst. I don't want to be the best. I just want to know I'm not in last place. That's, That's how low my standards are. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody does something to you, it hurts once. You forgive them, and it hurts again. You're now feeling the hurt they should be having. And you're walking with it and saying, if I give it to them now, if I snap back on Instagram, if I let somebody know the real truth behind what this person is doing, if I cancel Christmas for my children on December 5th because they're not listening, then we're saying you have reached the best you could reach and it's time to reap you now. And God is saying, I'm waiting. How much longer should you wait? If I'm not coming yet, why should your judgment be coming? I have a family member, I have a few family members who should be here this Christmas, and they're not. They've gone to be with the Lord tragically. Some of you have suffered loss in your life for this year, and it's inexplicable. We've seen forest fires, school shootings, 
It's just a shooting in New Jersey that got headlines for five minutes because when nine people die, it's not newsworthy anymore. We have crazy things happening, like, and I'm not saying this to be funny, so please, you'll laugh because it's ridiculous, but like, let's end the laughter quickly. The Yankees spent $365 million on somebody. The Texas Rangers spent $365 million on a stadium, and the Yankees spent it on a pitcher. And teachers aren't making enough money. Now watch this. Let me... Let me trigger the room for a second. Bernie Sanders said, if Garrett Cole could make $12,000 per pitch, I'd be throwing pitches every five seconds if I was making twelve grand per pitch. If he could make $36 million a year, teachers should at least be able to make sixty or 65000 a year to start. Now, here's the funny thing. Let me just say this. I planned on saying this. If I just brought up Bernie Sanders and you couldn't hear one good point that he made, you need to go re-listen to the patience part of the podcast that I just said before. This is real, and I'm doing this on purpose. If you don't like somebody, and therefore everything they say is wrong, you're immature and you're going to live a stunted Christian life. If you voted for Trump, you're a racist. If you voted for Hillary, you're crooked. Both of those are wrong. Mature people know that both of those are wrong. Extreme people who are lazy because it's easy to be extreme because you don't have to be accountable to anything will say stuff like that. But we know that we have to discern between evils. This is what, it, this is what Advent is. Advent is bringing a robust, full maturity into the present. The way we talk to people is the number one way that we express what kingdom we're waiting for. The way we talk about people is the number one way that we express what kingdom we're waiting for. More than that, the way we talk about people who are not of our tribe, our Christian tribe, reveals what we believe the good news is. If we have a terrible rhetoric for people who are not of this faith, we are not in the business of telling the world that a better kingdom is coming, one that's for them and not against them, like the kingdom we're all living in is clearly exploiting us and is against us. It's not demonic to have a lot of money. It's not demonic for Garrett Cole to take his $365 million. What's demonic is the society and the system that lets that happen. He's not demonic. Somebody offered me that right now. Like, hey, you want to be a pastor for $365 million? Yep. It'd be like five years later before I got convicted about that. Like, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't have done this. Videos of me preaching from, like, the Caymans. Like, hey, everyone, I just wanted to. The system that allows it to happen is what's demonic. That's what's demonic. That's what we should be speaking against. And some of us get to speak against it as the rich. And some of us get to speak against it as the poor. And some of us, most of us, get to speak about it as the middle. But we need to take whatever outfit we're wearing in culture and speak for and against it for it. We need to speak for it for the kingdom. And we need to speak against it for itself. That's what we have to do. But it really comes down to the way we talk about each other. And I say talk because Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the good news. The good news, news is something that's already happened. 
News is something that's already, no, you don't turn on Channel 4 in the morning and somebody's standing in front of a house saying, hey, uh, we're just on scene here. We're, we're thinking this house might burst into flames at some point in life. They show up when it's happened already. News is something that's happened, and news is spread through our mouth. What we say is the news that we believe. Is it really good when people wrong us and all we do is fillet them to other people? Are we really preaching a news of a kingdom that forgives even the least of these? Everyone's freaked out because we need to change our gun laws. Fine, but what about Jesus saying our mouth is a weapon? I'd rather see some legislation shut my mouth sometimes than anything else. I've said this before. If my mouth is a gun, I'm a serial killer and I've probably killed most of you and I'm sorry. That was mean. There are people that are living in such darkness that don't know the Lord. And there are Christians that, like John, are living in prison because we've done the right thing and it doesn't seem to be working and life can get very confusing. There is darkness in people's lives. There's the threat of sickness in people's lives. There's, we don't know what the doctor is going to say next in people's lives. People are one earthquake away from losing it. People are one phone call away from finding out that their Christmas will never be the same again. I'm driving Sophia to my mom's. Thank God for parents that live 10 minutes away from the house. Bringing Sophia to my mom's to... We say for her to play with grandma, but it's really to just get, get her out of the house for a minute. And I hear this Maroon 5 come on the radio because when I'm, when I'm driving Jacqueline's car that has the car seat in it, in my car, it's only Christian music. <laughs> if you come into my car, you're hearing Christian music. Okay? Because I know what Lucifer used to be. Right? jump up into Jacqueline's car and it's like punk rock this and hip hop and like there's such a wide array of stuff I'm like what is happening I'm terrified of this person I think it was 97.7 so you're okay that's like right that's fine <laughs> I said it into a microphone hon just kidding we won't tell them anymore this Maroon 5 song comes on it's called Memories and the chorus, I will read it. I will not sing it. We're going to have somebody better than Maroon 5 sing this in a moment. Right, Steph? Here's to the ones that we got. Cheers to the wish you were here, but you're not. Because the drinks bring back all the memories of everything we've been through. Now, understand, this song is a toast. So before you get all mad at me that the word drinks show up, chill out for two seconds. This song is a toast. Imagine the song is written as someone who would be saying, raise your glasses. And in this room, this party that they're in, everyone's holding up their glasses. And he says, here's to the ones that we got. Cheers to the wish you were here, but you're not. Because the drinks bring back all the memories of everything we've been through. Toast to the ones here today. Toast to the ones that we lost on the way. Because the drinks bring back all the memories, and the memories bring back you. And it 
it just got me that even in the secular world, and I cringe just to even say that, we are all pining for Advent. The drinks bring back memories, and memory brings back you. And I thought to myself, I had this vision. I had a vision. I probably shouldn't have been driving. I had a vision. And in the vision, I thought of all the times, all the priests, all the pastors who are going to hold up a chalice today. They're going to hold up this cup because Jesus told us to. That's why we do it. And they're going to hold it up, and they're going to say, on the night when he was betrayed, our Lord took this cup. And if you think about it from heaven's perspective, if, if all the churches in the world are really just uh, people at a table at a wedding, today all the churches are going to hold up their glass. And Jesus says, when you hold it up, do it in remembrance of me, and the memory will be so real and so profound that I'll be present to you. And the drinks will bring back memories, and memories will bring back you. And I thought, wow, what an amazing Eucharistic text. I don't think that's what Adam Levine meant. It couldn't be because he has tattoos. You know, anybody who has tattoos is not Christian. I'm so glad you laugh at that with me. Thank you. It's like three people not laughing right now. Blessed are those who are not offended by me. I want you to hear, come on, you two, lovebirds, get on up here for a second. I want you to hear this song, and I want you to think, when it says drinks, I want you to think of all the chalices that will be raised today. And I want you to read, as Stephanie sings it, I want you to hear the words to this song. It is an Advent song of the highest order, maybe on purpose, maybe by accident, but this is proof that the Spirit can get a hold of anything the world produces and use it for God's glory. But I want you to hear this because we are in a world of disappointing darkness, and we have a calling to be light. I want you to hear this song. to the ones that we got cheers to the wish you were here but you're not cause the drinks bring back all the memories of everything we've been through toast to the ones here today toast to the ones that we lost on the way cause the drinks bring back all the memories and the memories bring back memories bring back your there's a time that I remember When I did not know no pain When I believed in forever And everything would stay the same Now my heart's feel like December When somebody says your name Cause I can't reach out to call you But I know I will one day, yeah Everybody hurts sometimes Everybody hurts someday But everything gonna be alright Go raise a glass and say Here's to the ones that we got Cheers to the wish you were here but you're not Cause the drinks bring back all the memories Of everything we've been through Toast to the ones here today 
Toast to the ones that we lost on the way Cause the drinks bring back all the memories And the memories bring back, memories bring back you Do 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 Memories bring back, memories bring back you There's a time that I remember When I never felt so lost When I felt all of the hatred was too powerful to stop. Now my heart feels like an ember and it's lighting up the dark. I'll carry these torches for you that you know I'll never drop. Yeah. Everybody hurts sometimes. Everybody hurts someday. Eh, eh. But everything's gonna be all right. Go and raise a glass and say, Here's to the ones that we got. Cheers to the wish you were here, but you're not. Cause the drinks bring back all the memories of everything we've been through. Toast to the ones here today. Toast to the ones that we lost on the way. Cause the drinks bring back all the memories. And the memories bring back, memories bring back you. Do 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 Memories bring back, memories bring back you. says, there's a time that I remember when I never felt so lost. When I felt all of the hatred was too powerful to stop. Now my heart feels like an ember and it's lighting up the dark. I'll carry these torches for you and you know I'll never drop. That is the Christian Advent message to the world. I know it's dark, but we're going to carry this torch for you and we're not going to drop it. We won't be the light, but we will ha- hold these embers for you. And what does it mean This is the final thing I want to say. I know we've gone a little long, but I want everyone to hear this. It means that we have to hope so hard that we're willing to be naive. We live in a culture that is so afraid of being disappointed that we stopped loving and we stopped hoping the right way because our guard is up. And here's the reality. Jesus knew that Israel was going to reject him. He knew it when he was a boy. And when Israel rejected him, he wept over them and said, how I wish you would have recognized the time of your visitation. Look at this. Jesus knew they wouldn't, and yet he hoped that they would. Which means Jesus was naive. Jesus opened up himself to get disappointed. Jesus lived in a way that if he would have just been a little bit more mature, maybe he would have saved himself some heartache. And Jesus said, world, you are worth all the heartache. You're worth all the disappointment. I will hope for you when you can't hope for yourself. I'll find a shred of something to hope for. I will sift through everything you're throwing at me. And if there's even a chance that there's a chance that there's a chance that there's a chance that there's a chance, I'm going to hope for you. That's how I'm going to live. And maybe that means I live disappointed. I know parents in this room where your kids aren't walking with the Lord or, and then something happens one day and they ask a question or maybe they show up home and and they're respectful and you think maybe this is the turnaround. And then it leads to disappointment and you tell yourself, I'll never do that again. Do it all the time. 
Do it all the time. Find one reason to hope for somebody and act like this is the one that's going to change them around and be willing to get disappointed. And then when you get disappointed, hope again. And then when you get disappointed, hope again. And when you get disappointed, hope again and hope again and hope again and hope again. Because when he comes back, there will be no fools. There will be no unclean. Everyone will be on that road. So hope again and hope again and hope again and hope again and get disappointed and hope again and get disappointed and hope again. I'm going to keep going and get disappointed and hope again and get disappointed and hope again and hope and hope and hope and hope and hope until Jesus comes back. And when you get tired, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and hope and hope and hope. Come quickly and hope. I'm getting tired. Come quickly and hope. I'm still holding out. I'm getting tired. Come back. Come back again. Come back now and hope and hope and hope and keep hoping. I'm getting beat up, but hope. I'm getting broken, but hope. I'm getting disappointed, but hope, but hope, but hope, but hope. And keep pouring it out and keep pouring it out until you don't need to hope anymore. Because hope that is seen is no longer hope. When he comes back, that will be the end. Until then, what does he say? This is my body broken for you. As long as you're broken, I'll be broken. As long as your life is spilled, my life will be spilled. And I will not let my life be put back together until your life is put back together. He holds up that bread and he looks at people who there is not a chance in hell that they're going to not do what they're about to do, literally. And he says, I'll see your brokenness and I'll raise my glass. I see your broken body, I'll raise some bread. I see your spilled blood, I'll raise a cup. I will toast to your brokenness. Because what I say over your brokenness is going to end your brokenness. And my body will be shattered until your body's put back together again. So much so that when he rose from the dead, we are still broken. And so what does his body have on it? Proof that he's not willing to be fully put back together until we are. Stay broken for the people that you love. Stay shattered for the people that you love. The world can hope. Abraham hoped against hope. Abraham hoped when hope ran out. That's what we're called to. Live disappointed. Be naive. Hope anyway. I'm waiting for you, and I will not stop waiting for you forever. As long as it takes, I'm going to keep waiting for you. If he's going to keep waiting, who are we really walking away from? If he's not going to let go, who are we to let go? If he's being patient, who are we to bring judgment now? Let's light up the dark. Let's, let's look at the world's brokenness and raise a, a glass and say every Sunday we're going to come to church and we're going to raise this glass because this drink brings back a memory and that memory brings back him until the day that he returns. On the night before he died for us, our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take this. This is my body which is given for you. Do this because the memories bring back me. After supper, he took the cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. 
This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you raise this glass and proclaim this toast every Sunday, do this in remembrance of me. And when the church lifts up enough glasses, the drinks bring back a memory. And the memory brings back him until the day that he brings back the memories. Holy Spirit, more than the words that are being spoken is the melody, this this Advent melody that we hear in our heart. Give us the grace to trust you. Give us the grace to obey you. Give us the grace to trust and obey when it means we live broken until the world is put back together again, when it means we live disappointed, when it means we get taken advantage of, when it means that we don't get back at somebody, when it means that somebody gets the final word in our life, when it means all those things, give us the grace to trust and obey. And we pray that our restraint and our patience would be the way that we prepare the way in the wilderness for the Messiah to come. That as we stretch and rip ourselves apart like the Red Sea, that the world around us would walk on dry land right to the cross. Right to the cross. In your name we pray and everybody said, the ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.